We have a lot of excellent questions here this morning. Um, I have trouble reading some of them, so if you don't mind outing yourself, I might ask you to, to speak them out loud for my benefit so I can answer them. We're gonna take about uh, 20 minutes and see how much of this I can get through. I always talk a little longer than I plan to in these. Question number one, let's just dive right into it. One, what changes do you see coming for the Unitarian Universalist movement? And two, what changes do you see coming for Unitarian Universalist church structures and ministry? Um, this, is a, this is a timely question. Uh, uh, and the answer in the short form is, I don't really know. I know, I know what I hope, um, but church in general in America is going through a major shift in this country in how people relate to the institution. Uh, the pandemic forced some of that change in attitude because lockdowns and lack of one-on-one -on -one connection broke down some of our sense of connection to the institutions that we, we consider important to our lives. Um, and the other major shift, and the one that is gonna take a lot of brain power and a lot of creative thinking to actually deal with is this. Um, church membership and attendance is in decline nationwide. And the rising generations who would be the ones to come in and step into the next phase of leadership and volunteering and support of an institution like this do not trust the institution of church. Generations we would expect to come fill in the gaps do not trust the institution of church anymore as a monolithic idea. You know, we all come in our various flavors, but for good reason in this country, I think younger generations do not trust the institution because it's either let them down or it shouts out of philosophy into the marketplace of ideas that is unattractive. The loudest churches are divisive. They talk a lot about who belongs in and who does not belong. And for the new generations, that message does not track. It is not something they want to be a part of. They want to be part of a world that is bound together. So the question that churches face now and our church face and Unitarian Universalism in general is this. How do we connect with a generation that is inclined to not trust us? I have no answer to that question. Um, that is, that is the puzzle we are trying to solve right now. How do we connect with generations that don't see value in church? 
that want to connect in different ways, that don't want to give up a Sunday morning to do something they think might bore them. It's a big wave, and I don't know what the next answer is. I hope Unitarian Universalism is unique in that it finds a pathway to do this, because those connections, that boundless love, that sense of we all belong and we're always trying to widen the circle of who belongs, adjusting ourselves, I think that is something that we are uniquely situated to provide. The question is how do we get that message out there in a clear way that breaks through all of the static of all of the reasons why people might not trust church as an idea anymore. A bleak start, I'm sorry. First time visiting any Unitarian church. Hello, whoever you are, welcome. Hey! Does the Unitarian Church especially embrace any particular religious texts or recommend any? Uh, this is the beauty of a faith tradition that, as I just said, is ever trying to widen the circle of who belongs. Unitarian Universalism is a church that is much more concerned with how we live together across our differences and our diversity uh, instead of trying to figure out what the right thing is to believe for everybody, because we know there is no one answer, and anybody who is trying to give you one simple catch-all answer to life's biggest questions and problems is selling you something. Uh, we welcome that diversity in, and as such, the sacred text of Unitarian Universalism is the entire opus of human meaning-making throughout history. However human beings have tried to figure out what it's all about, what the answers to the big questions are, what it means to be alive and what it means that we die, all of that, all of those expressions are sacred text. Because when we engage with those questions in ourselves, when we try to put words to them, when we try to build art off of it as a way to express what words can't express, that is sacred work. Whoever among us is doing it. If you're sitting at home contemplating the meaning of life, you are doing sacred work. There is sacred text in there to parse. And like any sacred text, like the Bible, the Quran, any of the ones that are, are you know, put out there as, as gospel. Those texts need to be parsed and put into context and examined in relationship to all the other understandings of being human and being alive. Need to be understood in the context of the times that they were produced in. Uh, there's no there's no text we will ever take literally. All of it is open for study, for appreciation, for interpretation, uh, but none of it is taken as blind gospel here. But the sacred text I recommend is wherever you find something that sparks your own curiosity, your own exploration of meaning, 
into what all this is about. People find comfort in groups that affirm their identity. How do we, as a church, find the right balance between affirming that identity and seeking out those things that bind us all together? I want to go back to what I just said about our purpose being figuring out how to live together across our diversity. That's a very vague answer to this question as well. Um, how do we find the right balance begins with And this might trouble you for a second. Um, begins with dismissing the popular notion that is out there that identity is divisive in the first place. Identity has become a partisan tool for driving wedges between us because I claim this identity, I am different from the group, and therefore I should be excluded or I should be chastised for trying to be in the group or what have you. Um, but identity is what makes each of us unique. We all have our own interesting combinations of various identities. None of us has just one. And perhaps our identity, whichever of them we have, comes to the fore, depending on what context we're standing in. But diversity is what makes life beautiful. Diversity is what really contributes to life meaning something that makes life worth living on this planet because we're all not just cookie cutters and there's no expectation or there should not be that we're all going to be the same in some way. Um, so how we find the balance is to lean into in our faith tradition, what that call is, is to say, just acknowledge it's there. There's a, there's a saying in justice work that a different isn't good and different isn't bad. Difference just is. And the more we sit with that, the more we're able to hear the stories of people who claim different identities from what me, we may have and we can wrap that in to the sacred text of all meaning making that we're talking about here um, and figure out how to celebrate those differences, that diversity, those identities, and live with them in spite of where we might think divisions might be. But it begins, and I want to go back to this, with letting go of the notion that some would like us to have 
that identity is divisive in and of itself. Tell us how many jobs are available in volunteering. Oh my God, I'm so glad you asked that question. So many, so many jobs. Uh, we right now are looking for more members of our worship team, either to get up and help with leading parts of the service or working a little more in the background to make sure everything's physically set up the way that it needs to be. We need that right now. We need people who are looking to help out with maintaining the physical structures of our building and work with our building chair, Jeff Franzak, to, to take care of those things and schedule those things. We are always looking for people to volunteer in religious education. The more volunteers we have, the more depth of programming we can offer to children and adults as well. Uh, we need goodness, people who are good at finance, uh, we need people who like to play with technology and want to sit in the booth back there on a Sunday morning and run the live stream and the slides and the sound and all of that. We need, I, I can't even name it all right now, uh, because this church runs on uh, your time and your talent as much as money you may pledge to us from year to year, um, primarily because I can't do it all. Uh, I, I'm only good at certain things, not all things. Uh, don't put me on a finance committee. I can barely read a budget. Um, don't put me on a building committee because I'll probably break things faster than I fix them. We need people with all sorts of talents, diverse talents, uh, to keep this up and running and be part of. If there is something you're interested in doing that we haven't even thought of that might make a difference to the church community, Come and tell me about it, and let's see if we can make something out of it to just enrich the life of the church and make it that much more deep and wide and accessible. Uh, so many opportunities. cow, I have five minutes left. <laughs> uh, these two kind of go together. Uh, how does a Unitarian Universalist proselytize? What would that ever look like? Uh, and how can we as Unitarian Universalist members recruit new members? Is there a course by which we can follow? Being a good example is the most important, however. Uh, yes, that is number one. How do we proselytize? Um, we just live our lives by the values that we explore here and get deeper with from week to week. Uh, but number two, and I cannot stress this enough, uh, I put this graphic a few months back in my newsletter column. Um, the number one reason people come to church for the first time is because someone they know and trust invited them to come along with them. That's it. That's it right there. You don't have to make a case for a particular God or non-God. You don't have to be able to explain what Unitarian Universalist theology is because it's really complicated and it changes from person to person. All you have to talk about is what you found of value 
maybe a little bit of something about how your life has been changed or improved by being part of this community. And then a, hey, I think you'd really dig this. Do you want to come with me next Sunday? And that's it. Uh, there is more growth work to be done around that really bleak question, the, the, the answer that I gave at the top of the service about reaching out to people who just don't trust church, because that's going to become more and more of an issue. Living your values where they can be seen. Asking people to join you. That's where it all begins. Two ministers were removed from the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association. Is this a canceled? Let me start by saying, and this is just from me, I have a quibble with the notion of cancel culture being a thing in the first place. Um, a lot of what gets referred to as cancellation in popular media, in, in, in the ether out there that we are pen, paying attention to, uh, is just consequences that probably should have happened in the first place for bad behavior. Um, that's not canceling, that is accountability. In the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association, in the work of the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, we have a code of ethics and best practices that we follow. And we know what we're getting into when we come on the path to ordained ministry. We know what is expected of us, and we know what might happen if we violate that code. The code also contains um, ways in which we try to come back together when a violation happens so that we don't go down a legalistic pathway, we try to come back into relationship with one another. Now, sometimes ministers are removed for, from fellowship for very good and obvious reasons that no one would argue with, um, sexual misconduct, financial misconduct, the kind of the big crimes that you don't want somebody who has been entrusted with the ministry of church uh, to be in a church with anymore. Sometimes the ethical violations have to do with how we've agreed to be in relationship with one another as ministers, and sometimes that from the outside might look a little uh, more vague. But the thing is, we know what's expected of us. And that's the thing I want to express. We know what is expected of us, and we know what the pathway is when we break trust with one another to try to come back into relationship. Um, I think I know the particular ministers who are being asked about here, and I'm not going to go into that whole long story 
in the 20 seconds I have left on this timer. Um, we know what's expected of us. We know what the pathway is when we bear trust with one another. And if we refuse to, after we've stepped into this role, fully cognizant of what we have promised to one another and to our congregations, if we, if we break that trust and then refuse to even get on the path, there's no way to rebuild that together. And in this instance, this, this is what happened. Uh, ethical codes were violated. Pathways were offered to restore things back. They were refused. And we all agreed as ministers that this is how we were going to be together. What choice do we have at that point? And then I'm going to end on this one, even though my buzzer just buzzed at me. What is the Christmas season like at this church? Excellent question. Uh, Christmas season here is similar to what you might find in any other Protestant church, but also somewhat different because it's not the only winter holiday religious tradition that we engage with here. So on Christmas Eve, we'll have a traditional Christmas Eve service with candlelight and reading of the story of the birth of Jesus from the Gospels. Um, but a couple of nights before, we'll have a full-on pagan welcome solstice celebration out in the parking lot with a spiral maze and little fires lit everywhere. Uh, and we'll acknowledge Hanukkah sometimes if we can do it authentically. And even here, we'll, we'll do a pageant. Sometimes it's a Christmas pageant. Uh, sometimes we've done a pageant for solstice. Uh, this year, I'm trying to write a script, and I make no promises that it will be finished in time, uh, a pageant about all of the various variations of St. Nicholas throughout the world and throughout history. We'll see how that goes. Um, I do some stuff around Advent leading into the Christmas season here. I will bring out the Advent wreath. We will light the candles from week to week. I'll do a little meditation around that. Um, I don't know if everyone appreciates that. I do know, for me, it is very helpful uh, because the, the, the run from Thanksgiving to Christmas is what I like to call the runaway toboggan of dynamite, and I hope I get through the end of the season without exploding. So that moment, for me, of uh, being able to rest and contemplate and acknowledge the sacredness of the season that we're entering into helps me focus and make holidays more meaningful for all of you. Uh, and that's my answer to that. I want to thank you all for asking your questions this morning. I have like seven more left up here. I'm very sorry I didn't get to them. Um, they might be the seeds of sermons at some point in the future. I do hang, I have all of the questions from every one of these that I've done for the last. Uh, 17 years now in a box in my office and they stay with me and they're there for reference cards for me as well. So thank you for being curious, even if I didn't satisfy your curiosity today.